This episode is brought to you by Marissa, Etinosa, and John. Thank you, Marissa, Etinosa, and John, for supporting this show and being such loyal citizens of another world. All right, welcome, guys. We have made it. We have made it to the final problem. This is the last story in the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, and uh, if you can believe what you read, it's the last story that Sherlock will ever tell. Except we know it's not because we've all <laughs> probably read the other books and know that he comes back, but, uh, oops, spoiler warning. Sorry about that. Anyway, here's the final problem, guys. Uh, we're, we're here, so this means that I need to hear from you what uh, book you want to hear next because we're at the end and we need to have another book. Uh, obviously, the podcast can't stop here here just because sherlock stops doesn't mean that we're stopping so let me know get in touch with me netherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com and all the social media links are down below and once we're finished with this too uh we are going to be doing that sherlock giveaway so make sure that you have gotten in on that there's still time still opportunity to leave a review um and that will get you into the drawing for getting all four of the sherlock audiobooks for free that we have done which is a pretty pretty decent exchange i'd say for leaving a quick review just to let other people know about the podcast so if you want to do that i would mean the world to me and i would really appreciate it all right so now without further ado i give you 12 the final problem it is with a heavy heart that i take up my pen to write these the last words in which i shall ever record the singular gifts by which my friend mr sherlock holmes was distinguished in an incoherent and, as I deeply feel, an entirely inadequate fashion, I have endeavoured to give some account of my strange experiences in his company, from the chance which first brought us together at the period of the study in Scarlet, up to the time of his interference in the matter of the naval treaty, an interference which had the unquestionable effect of preventing a serious international complication. It was my intention to have stopped there, and to have said nothing of that event which has created a void in my life which the lapse of two years has done little to fill. My hand has been forced, however, by the recent letters in which Colonel James Moriarty defends the memory of his brother, and I have no choice but to lay the facts before the public exactly as they occurred. I alone know the absolute truth of the matter, and I am satisfied that the time has come when no good purpose is to be served by its suppression." As far as I know, there have been only three accounts in the public press. That in the Journal de Geneva, on May 6th, 1891, the Reuters despatch in the English papers on May 7th, and finally, the recent letter to which I have alluded. Of these, the first and second were extremely condensed, while the last is, as I shall now show, an absolute perversion of the facts. It lies with me to tell for the first time what really took place between Professor Moriarty and Mr. Sherlock Holmes. It may be remembered that, after my marriage and my subsequent start in private practice, the very intimate relations which had existed between Holmes and myself became to some extent modified. He still came to me from time to time when he desired a companion in his investigation, but these occasions grew more and more seldom, until I find that, in the year 1890, there were only three cases of which I retain any record— during the winter of that year, and the early spring of 1891, I saw in the papers that he had been engaged by the French government upon a matter of supreme importance, and I received two notes from Holmes, dated from Narbonne and from Nimes, from which I gathered that his stay in France was likely to be a long one. It was with some surprise, therefore, that I saw him walk into my consulting-room upon the evening of the 24th of April. 
it struck me that he was looking even paler and thinner than usual. "'Yes, I have been using myself up rather too freely,' he remarked, in answer to my look rather than to my words. "'I've been a little pressed of late. Have you any objection to my closing your shutters?' The only light in the room came from the lamp upon the table at which I had been reading. Holmes edged his way round the wall, and, flinging the shutters together, he bolted them securely. "'You are afraid of something?' I asked. "'Well, I am.' "'Of what?' "'Of air-guns.' "'My dear Holmes, what do you mean?' "'I think that you know me well enough, Watson, to understand that I am by no means a nervous man.' At the same time, it is stupidity rather than courage to refuse to recognize danger when it is close upon you. Might I trouble you for a match? He drew in the smoke of his cigarette, as if the soothing influence was grateful to him. I must apologize for calling so late, said he, and I must further beg you to be so unconventional as to allow me to leave your house presently by scrambling over your back garden wall. But what does it all mean? I asked. He held out his hand, and I saw in the light of the lamp that two of his knuckles were burst and bleeding. "'It is not an airy nothing, you see,' he said, smiling. "'On the contrary, it is solid enough for a man to break his hand over. Is Mrs. Watson in?' "'She is away upon a visit.' "'Indeed. You are alone?' "'Quite.' "'Then it makes it easier for me to propose that you should come away with me for a week to the continent.' "'Where?' Oh, anywhere. It's all the same to me. There was something very strange in all this. It was not Holmes's nature to take an aimless holiday, and something about his pale, worn face told me that his nerves were at their highest tension. He saw the question in my eyes, and, putting his fingertips together and his elbows upon his knees, he explained the situation. You have probably never heard of Professor Moriarty? said he. Never? "'Aye, there's the genius and the wonder of the thing,' he cried. "'The man pervades London, and no one has heard of him. "'That's what puts him on a pinnacle in the record of crime. "'I tell you, Watson, in all seriousness, that if I could beat that man, "'if I could free society of him, I should feel that my own career has reached its summit, "'and I should be prepared to turn to some more placid line in life.' Between ourselves, the recent cases in which I have been of assistance to the royal family of Scandinavia and to the French Republic have left me in such a position that I could continue to live in the quiet fashion which is most congenial to me, and to concentrate my attention upon my chemical researches. But I could not rest, Watson. I could not sit quiet in my chair if I thought that such a man as Professor Moriarty were walking the streets of London unchallenged. What has he done, then? His career has been an extraordinary one. He is a man of good birth and excellent education, endowed by nature with a phenomenal mathematical faculty. At the age of twenty-one, he wrote a treatise upon the binomial theorem, which has had a European vogue. On the strength of it, he won the mathematical chair at one of our smaller universities, and had, to all appearances, a most brilliant career before him. But the man had hereditary tendencies of the most diabolical kind. A criminal strain ran in his blood, which, instead of being modified, was increased and rendered infinitely more dangerous by his extraordinary mental powers. Dark rumors gathered round him in the university town, and eventually he was compelled to resign his chair and to come down to London, 
where he set up as an army coach. So much is known to the world, but what I am telling you now is what I have myself discovered. As you are aware, Watson, there is no one who knows the higher criminal world of London so well as I do. For years past, I have continually been conscious of some power behind the malefactor, some deep organizing power which forever stands in the way of the law, and throws its shield over the wrongdoer. Again and again, in cases of the most varying sort, forgery cases, robberies, murders, I have felt the presence of this force, and I have deduced its action in many of these undiscovered crimes, in which I have not been personally consulted. For years I have endeavoured to break through the veil which shrouded it, and at last the time came when I seized my thread and followed it, until it led me, after a thousand cunning windings, to ex-Professor Moriarty, of mathematical celebrity. He is the Napoleon of crime, Watson. He is the organiser of half that is evil, and nearly all that is undetected in this great city. He is a genius, a philosopher, an abstract thinker. He has a brain of the first order— he sits motionless, like a spider in the centre of its web, but that web has a thousand radiations, and he knows well every quiver of each of them. He does little himself, he only plans, but his agents are numerous and splendidly organised. Is there a crime to be done, a paper to be abstracted, we will say, a house to be rifled, a man to be removed? The word is passed to the professor, the matter is organised and carried out. The agent may be caught, in that case money is found for his bail or his defence, but the central power which uses the agent is never caught, never so much as suspected. This was the organisation which I deduced, Watson, and which I devoted my whole energy to exposing and breaking up. But the professor was fenced round with safeguards, so cunningly devised that, do what I would, it seemed impossible to get evidence which would convict in a court of law. You know my powers, my dear Watson, and yet at the end of three months I was forced to confess that I had at last met an antagonist who was my intellectual equal. My horror at his crimes was lost in my admiration at his skill, but at last he made a trip. Only a little, little trip, but it was more than he could afford when I was so close upon him. I had my chance, and starting from that point I have woven my net round him until now it is all ready to close." In three days, that is to say, on Monday next, matters will be ripe, and the professor, with all the principal members of his gang, will be in the hands of the police. Then will come the greatest criminal trial of the century, the clearing up of over forty mysteries, and the rope for all of them. But if we move at all prematurely, you understand, they may slip out of our hands even at the last moment. Now, if I could have done this without the knowledge of Professor Moriarty, all would have been well, but he was too wily for that. He saw every step which I took to draw my toils round him. Again and again he strove to break away, but I as often headed him off. I tell you, my friend, that if a detailed account of that silent contest could be written, it would take its place as the most brilliant bit of thrust and parry work in the history of detection. Never have I risen to such a height, never have I been so hard-pressed by an opponent. He cut deep, and yet I just undercut him. This morning the last steps were taken, and three days only were wanted to complete the business. I was sitting in my room thinking the matter over when the door opened, and Professor Moriarty stood before me. My nerves are fairly proof, Watson, but I must confess to a start when I saw the very man who had been so much of my thoughts standing there on my threshold. His appearance was quite familiar to me. He is extremely tall and thin.' 
His forehead domes out in a white curve, and his two eyes are deeply sunken in his head. He is clean-shaven, pale, and ascetic-looking, retaining something of the professor in his features. His shoulders are rounded from much study, and his face protrudes forward and is forever slowly oscillating from side to side in a curious reptilian fashion. He peered at me with great curiosity in his puckered eyes. "'You have less frontal development than I should have expected,' said he at last. "'It is a dangerous habit to finger loaded firearms in the pocket of one's dressing gown.' The fact that upon his entrance I had instantly recognized the extreme personal danger in which I lay, the only conceivable escape for him lay in silencing my tongue. In an instant I had slipped the revolver from the drawer into my pocket, and was covering him through the cloth. At his remark, I drew the weapon out and laid it cocked upon the table. He still smiled and blinked, but there was something about his eyes which made me feel very glad that I had it there. "'You evidently don't know me,' said he. "'On the contrary,' I asked. "'I think that it is fairly evident that I do. "'Pray, take a chair. "'I can spare you five minutes if you have anything to say.' "'All that I have to say has already crossed your mind,' said he. "'Then possibly my answer has crossed yours,' I replied. "'You stand fast?' Absolutely. He clapped his hand into his pocket, and I raised the pistol from the table, but he merely drew out a memorandum book in which he had scribbled some dates. You crossed my path on the 4th of January, said he. On the 23rd you incommoded me. By the middle of February I was seriously inconvenienced by you. At the end of March I was absolutely hampered in my plans, and now... At the close of April, I find myself placed in such a position through your continual persecution that I am in positive danger of losing my liberty. The situation is becoming an impossible one. Have you any suggestion to make? I asked. You must drop it, Mr. Holmes, said he, swaying his face about. You really must, you know. After Monday, said I. Tut, said he. I am quite sure that a man of your intelligence will see that there can be but one outcome to this affair. It is necessary that you should withdraw. You have worked things in such a fashion that we can have only one resource left. It has been an intellectual treat to me to see the way in which you have grappled with this affair, and I say unaffectedly. That it would be a grief to me to be forced to take any extreme measure. You smile, sir, but I assure you that it really would. Danger is part of my trade, I remarked. <laughs> that is not danger, said he. It is inevitable destruction. You stand in the way not merely of an individual, but of a mighty organization— the full extent of which you, with all your cleverness, have been unable to realize. You must stand clear, Mr. Holmes, or be trodden underfoot. I am afraid, said I, rising, that in the pleasure of this conversation I am neglecting business of importance which awaits me elsewhere. He rose also and looked at me in silence, shaking his head sadly. 
Well, well, said he at last. It seems a pity, but I've done what I could. I know every move of your game. You can do nothing before Monday. It has been a duel between you and me, Mr. Holmes. You hope to place me in the dock. I tell you that I will never stand in the dock. You hope to beat me. I tell you that you will never beat me. If you are clever enough to bring destruction upon me, rest assured that I shall do as much to you. You have paid me several compliments, Mr. Moriarty, said I. Let me pay you one in return, when I say that if I were assured of the former eventuality, I would, in the interest of the public, cheerfully accept the latter. I can promise you the one, would not the other, he snarled, and so turned his rounded back upon me, and went peering and blinking out of the room. That was my singular interview with Professor Moriarty. I confess that it left an unpleasant effect upon my mind. His soft, precise fashion of speech leaves a conviction of sincerity which a mere bully could not produce. Of course, you will say, why not take the police precautions against him? The reason is that I am well convinced that it is from his agents the blow will fall. I have the best proofs that it would be so. You have already been assaulted. My dear Watson, Professor Moriarty is not a man who lets the grass grow under his feet. I went out about midday to transact some business in Oxford Street. As I passed the corner which leads from Bentick Street to the Welbeck Street crossing, a two-horse van, furiously driven, whizzed round and was only like a flash. I sprang from the footpath and saved myself by the fraction of a second. The van dashed round by Marblestone Lane and was gone in an instant. I kept to the pavement after that, Watson, but as I walked down Vere Street a brick came down from the roof of one of the houses and was shattered to fragments at my feet. I called the police and had the place examined. There were slates and bricks piled up on the roof preparatory to some repairs, and they would have me believe that the wind had toppled over one of these. Of course I knew better, but I could prove nothing. I took a cab after that and reached my brother's room in Paul Mall, where I spent the day. Now I have come round to you, and on my way I was attacked by a rough with a bludgeon. I knocked him down, and the police have him in custody, but I can tell you with the most absolute confidence that no possible connection will ever be traced between the gentleman upon whose front teeth I have barked my knuckles and the retiring mathematical coach who is, I dare say, working out problems upon a blackboard ten miles away. You will not wonder, Watson, that my first act on entering your rooms was to close your shutters, and that I have been compelled to ask your permission to leave the house by some less conspicuous exit than the front door. I had often admired my friend's courage, but never more than now, as he sat quietly checking off a series of incidents which must have combined to make up a day of horror. "'You will spend the night here?' I asked. "'No, my friend, you might find me a dangerous guest.' I have my plans laid, and all will be well. Matters have gone so far now that they can move without my help as far as the arrest goes, though my presence is necessary for a conviction. It is obvious, therefore, that I cannot do better than get away for the few days which remain before the police are at liberty to act. It would be a great pleasure to me, therefore, if you could come on to the continent with me. The practice is quiet, said I, and I have an accommodating neighbour. I should be glad to come. And to start tomorrow morning? If necessary. Oh, yes, it is most necessary. Then these are your instructions, and I beg, my dear Watson, that you will obey them to the letter. 
for you are now playing a double-handed game with me against the cleverest rogue and the most powerful syndicate of criminals in Europe. Now listen, you will dispatch whatever luggage you intend to take by a trusty messenger unaddressed to Victoria tonight. In the morning you will send for a hansom, desiring your man to take neither the first nor the second which may present itself. Into this hansom you will jump, and you will drive to the strand end of the Lowther Arcade, handing the address to the cabman upon a slip of paper, with a request that he will not throw it away. Have your fare ready, and the instant that your cab stops, dash through the arcade, timing yourself to reach the other side at a quarter past nine. You will find a small broom waiting close to the curb, driven by a fellow with a heavy black cloak tipped at the collar with red. Into this you will step, and you will reach Victoria in time for the Continental Express. Where shall I meet you? At the station. The second first-class carriage from the front will be reserved for us. The carriage is our rendezvous, then? Yes. Oh yeah, this is a two-parter, of course. <laughs> uh, we really appreciate you guys tuning in today, but uh, next week we are going to wrap this up, and that means that I need to hear from you. What book do you want to hear next? Get in touch with me on the social mediums, or uh, email, whatever. Uh, just let me know. What book do you want to hear next? Uh, we have to do something that's in the public domain, unless you know of an indie author who would like to have their work read on the podcast. I'm always interested in helping out indie authors in that way. So get in touch with me, let me know what you want to hear next, and who knows? I mean, this is this is like for real, people. If you get in touch with me, uh, a lot of times people don't get in touch with the show. <laughs> and that means that if you do, your voice will hold a lot of sway. So go ahead and get in touch with me. Let me know what you want to hear next. And who knows? It very well could be the next book that we do. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to share the show with somebody that you know who might enjoy a free audiobook. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I was in school, I absolutely hated writing. It wasn't until I was a bit older that I came to understand the power of words. If you're a business owner, you understand that power too. A business blog, when done right, can drive sales, increase revenue, and get you more customers. But as a business owner, you probably don't have the time to do all that writing. Plus, if you're not a copywriter by trade, you might feel like you're just kind of throwing words out there and they're not actually accomplishing anything. The good news is, there's a simple solution. Check it out. I call it the ultimate blog post checklist for businesses with online stores. This checklist will allow you to write better, more effective articles that convert readers into buyers. It's full of easy-to-follow examples to get your creativity flowing based on experience of nearly a million words written. And best of all, it's effective on any type of article in any industry or niche. I've successfully used this exact checklist on topics from pool table reviews to investment advice. Tired of spending tons of time writing stuff that doesn't convert? This checklist will change that by giving you highly effective blog posts and articles that transform readers into paying customers. Go to Invicta.Enterprises slash free checklist and start saving time and transforming your writing now. That's Invicta.Enterprises slash free checklist. 